0: Part five of Tale one of Five Tales by John Galsworthy This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Recording by David Wales Lawrence had remained sitting on his bed for many minutes. An innocent man in no danger. Keith had said it, the celebrated lawyer. Could he rely on that? Go out eight thousand miles, he and the girl? and leave a fellow-creature, perhaps in mortal peril, for an act committed by himself?" In the past night he had touched bottom, as he thought, become ready to face anything. When Keith came in, he would, without murmur, have accepted the vice, give yourself up. He was prepared to pitch away the end of his life, as he pitched from him the fag-ends of his cigarettes. And the long sigh he had heaved hearing of reprieve, had been only half-relief. Then, with incredible swiftness, there had rushed through him a feeling of unutterable joy and hope. Clean away, into a new country, a new life. The girl and he. Out there he wouldn't care, would rejoice even to have squashed the life out of such a noisome beetle of a man. Out there, under a new sun, where blood ran thicker than in this foggy land, and people took justice into their own hands. For it had been justice on that brute, even though he had not meant to kill him. And then, to hear of this arrest, they would be charging the man to-day. He could go and see the poor creature accused of the murder he himself had committed. And he laughed. Go and see how likely it was that they might hang a fellow man in place of himself. He dressed, but too shaky to shave himself, went out to a barber shop. While there he read the news which Keith had seen. In this paper the name of the arrested man was given, John Evan, no address. To be brought up on the charge at Bow Street. Yes, he must go. Once, twice, three times he walked past the entrance of the court before at last he entered and screwed himself away among the tag and bobtail. The court was crowded, and from the murmurs round he could tell that it was his particular case which had brought so many there. In a dazed way he watched charge after charge disposed of with lightning quickness. But were they never going to reach his business? And then suddenly he saw the little scarecrow man of last night advancing to the dock between two policemen, more ragged and miserable than ever by light of day, like some shaggy, wan, gray animal surrounded by sleek hounds. A sort of satisfied purr was rising all around, and with horror Lawrence perceived that this, this was the man accused of what he himself had done, this queer, battered, unfortunate, to whom he had shown a passing friendliness. Then all feeling merged in the appalling interest of listening. The evidence was very short. Testimony of the hotel-keeper where Wallen had been staying, the identification of his body, and of a snake-shaped ring he had been wearing at dinner that evening. Testimony of a pawnbroker that this same ring was pawned with him the first thing yesterday morning by the prisoner. Testimony of a policeman that he had noticed the man Evan several times in Glove Lane, and twice moved him on from sleeping under that arch. Testimony of another policeman that, when arrested at midnight, Evan had said, Yes, I took the ring off his finger. I found him there, dead. I know I oughtn't to have done it. I'm an educated man. It was stupid to pawn the ring. I found him with his pockets turned inside out fascinating and terrible to sit staring at the man in whose place he should have been, to wonder when those small bright gray bloodshot eyes would spy him out, and how he would meet that glance. Like a baited raccoon the little man stood, screwed back into a corner, mournful, cynical, fierce, with his ridged obtuse yellow face and his stubbly gray beard and hair, and his eyes wandering now and again amongst the crowd. But with all his might Lawrence kept his face unmoved. Then came the word remanded, and, more like a baited beast than ever, the man was led away. Lawrence sat on, a cold perspiration thick on his forehead. Someone else, then, had come on the body, and turned the pockets inside out, before John Evan took the ring. A man such as Wallen would not be out at night without money. Besides, if Evan had found the money on the body, he would never have run the risk of taking that ring. Yes, someone else had come on the body first. It was for that one to come forward, and prove that the ring was still on the dead man's finger when he left him, and thus clear Evan. He clung to that thought. It seemed to make him less responsible for the little man's position to remove him and his own deed one step further back. If they found the person who had taken the money, it would prove Evan's innocence. He came out of the court in a sort of trance, and a craving to get drunk attacked him. One could not go on like this without the relief of some oblivion. If he could only get drunk, keep drunk till this business was decided, and he knew whether he must give himself up or no. He had, now, no fear at all of people suspecting him, only fear of himself, fear that he might go and give himself up. Now he could see the girl. The danger from that was as nothing compared with the danger from his own conscience. He had promised Keith not to see her. Keith had been decent and loyal to him. Good old Keith. But he would never understand that this girl was now all he cared about in life that he would rather be cut off from life itself than be cut off from her. Instead of becoming less and less, she was becoming more and more to him, Experience, strange and thrilling. Out of deep misery she had grown happy. Through him, out of a sordid, shifting life, recovered coherence and bloom, through devotion to him, him of all people in the world it was a miracle. She demanded nothing of him, adored him, as no other woman ever had. It was this which had anchored his drifting bark. This, and her truthful, mild intelligence, and that burning warmth of a woman, who long treated by men as but a sack of sex, now loves at last. And suddenly, mastering his craving to get drunk, he made towards Soho, He had been a fool to give those keys to Keith. She must have been frightened by his visit, and perhaps doubly miserable since, knowing nothing, imagining everything. Keith was sure to have terrified her. Poor little thing! Down the street, where he had stolen in the dark with the dead body on his back, he almost ran for the cover of her house. The door was open to him before he knocked. Her arms were round his neck, her lips pressed to his. The fire was out, as if she had been unable to remember to keep warm. A stool had been drawn to the window, and there she had evidently been sitting, like a bird in a cage, looking out into the grey street. Though she had been told that he was not to come, instinct had kept her there, or the pathetic, aching hope against hope which lovers never part with now that he was there her first thoughts were for his comfort the fire was lighted he must eat drink smoke there was never in her doings any of the i am doing this for you but you ought to be doing that for me which belongs to so many marriages and liaisons she was like a devoted slave so in love with the chains that she never knew she wore them and to lawrence who had so little sense of property This only served to deepen tenderness and the hold she had on him. He had resolved not to tell her of the new danger he ran from his own conscience, but resolutions with him were but the opposites of what was sure to come, and at last the words, They have arrested someone, escaped him. From her face he knew she had grasped the danger at once, had divined it, perhaps, before he spoke but she only twined her arms around him and kissed his lips, and he knew that she was begging him to put his love for her above his conscience. Who would ever have thought that he could feel as he did to this girl who had been in the arms of many? The stained and suffering past of a loved woman awakens in some men only chivalry. In others, more respectable, it arouses a tigerish itch a rancorous jealousy of what in the past was given to others. Sometimes it will do both. When he had her in his arms he felt no remorse for killing the coarse, handsome brute who had ruined her. He savagely rejoiced in it. But when she laid her head in the hollow of his shoulder, turning to him her white face with the faint color-staining on the parted lips, the cheeks, the eyelids, when her dark, wide-apart brown eyes gazed up in the happiness of her abandonment, he felt only tenderness and protection. He left her at five o'clock, and had not gone two streets' length before the memory of the little gray vagabond, screwed back in the far corner of the dock like a baited raccoon, of his dreary, creaking voice, took possession of him again and a kind of savagery mounted in his brain against a world where one could be so tortured without having meant harm to any one. At the door of his lodging, Keith was getting out of a cab. They went in together, but neither of them sat down. Keith, standing with his back to the carefully shut door, Lawrence with his back to the table, as if they knew there was a tug coming. And Keith said, "'There's room on that boat.' Go down and book your berth before they shut. Here's the money." I'm going to stick it, Keith. Keith stepped forward and put a roll of notes on the table. Now, look here, Larry. I've read the police court proceedings. There's nothing in that. Out of prison or in prison for a few weeks, it's all the same to a nightbird of that sort. Dismiss it from your mind. There is not nearly enough evidence to convict. This gives you your chance. Take it like a man, and make a new life for yourself." Lawrence smiled, but the smile had a touch of madness and a touch of malice. He took up the notes. "'Clear out, and save the honor of Brother Keith. Put them back in your pocket, Keith, or I'll put them in the fire. Come, take them.' And crossing to the fire, He held them to the bars. "'Take them, or in they go.' Keith took back the notes. "'I've still got some kind of honor, Keith. If I clear out, I shall have none, not the rag of any. None left. It may be worth more to me than that. I I can't tell yet. I can't tell.' There was a long silence before Keith answered, "'I tell you you're mistaken no jury will convict. If they did, a judge would never hang on it. A ghoul who can rob a dead body ought to be in prison. What he did is worse than what you did, if you come to that. Lawrence lifted his face. Judge not, brother, he said. The heart is a dark well. Keith's yellowish face grew red and swollen, as though he were mastering the tickle of a bronchial cough. WHAT ARE YOU GOING TO DO, THEN? I SUPPOSE I MAY ASK YOU NOT TO BE ENTIRELY OBLIVIOUS OF OUR NAME, OR IS SUCH A CONSIDERATION UNWORTHY OF YOUR HONOR?" Lawrence bent his head. The gesture said more clearly than words, DON'T KICK A MAN WHEN HE'S DOWN. I DON'T KNOW WHAT I'M GOING TO DO. NOTHING AT PRESENT. I'M AWFULLY SORRY, KEITH, AWFULLY SORRY. KEITH LOOKED AT HIM, AND, WITHOUT ANOTHER WORD, WENT OUT. END OF PART FIVE PART six. TO ANY, SAVE PHILOSOPHERS, REPUTATION MAY BE THREATENED ALMOST AS MUCH BY DISGRACE TO NAME AND FAMILY AS BY THE DISGRACE OF SELF. KEITH'S INSTINCT WAS ALWAYS TO DEAL ACTIVELY WITH DANGER. But this blow, whether it fell on him by discovery or by confession, could not be countered. As blight falls on a rose from who knows where, the scandalous murk would light on him. No repulse possible, not even a wriggling from under, brother of a murderer hung or sent to penal servitude, his daughter niece to a murderer, his dead mother a murderer's mother and to wait day after day, week after week, not knowing whether the blow would fall, was an extraordinarily atrocious penance, the injustice of which, to a man of rectitude, seemed daily the more monstrous. The remand had produced evidence that the murdered man had been drinking heavily on the night of his death, and further evidence of the accused professional vagabondage and destitution it was shown, too, that for some time the archway in Glove Lane had been his favorite night haunt. He had been committed for trial in January. This time, despite misgivings, Keith had attended the police court. To his great relief, Larry was not there. But the policeman who had come up while he was looking at the archway, and given him afterwards that scare in the girls' rooms, was chief witness to the way the accused man haunted Glove Lane. Though Keith held his silk hat high, he still had the uncomfortable feeling that the man had recognized him. His conscience suffered few, if any, twinges for letting this man rest under the shadow of the murder. He genuinely believed that there was not evidence enough to convict, nor was it in him to appreciate the tortures of a vagabond shut up. The scamp deserved what he had got, for robbing a dead body, and in any case such a scarecrow was better off in prison than sleeping out under archways in December. Sentiment was foreign to Keith's character, and his justice that of those who subordinate the fates of the weak and shiftless to the needful paramountcy of the strong and well-established. His daughter came back from school for the Christmas holidays. It was hard to look up from her bright eyes and rosy cheeks and see this shadow hanging over his calm and ordered life, as in a glowing room one's eyes may catch an impending patch of darkness drawn like a spider's web across a corner of the ceiling. On the afternoon of Christmas Eve they went, by her desire, to a church in Soho, where the Christmas oratorio was being given. And coming away, passed by chance of a wrong turning down Borrow Street. Ugh! How that startled moment when the girl had pressed herself against him in the dark, and her terror-stricken whisper, "Oh, who is it?", leaped out before him. Always that business, that, that ghastly business. After the trial, he would have another try to get them both away and he thrust his arm within his young daughter's, hurrying her on, out of the street where shadows filled all the winter air. But that evening, when she had gone to bed, he felt uncontrollably restless. He had not seen Larry for weeks. What was he about? What desperations were hatching in his disorderly brain? Was he very miserable? Had he perhaps sunk into a stupor of debauchery? and the old feeling of protectiveness rose up in him, a warmth born of long-ago Christmas eves, when they had stockings hung out in the night, stuffed by a Santa Claus, whose hand never failed to tuck them up, whose kiss was their nightly waft into sleep. Stars were sparkling out there over the river, the sky frosty, clear, and black. Bells had not begun to ring as yet. And obeying an obscure, deep impulse, Keith wrapped himself once more into his fur coat, pulled a motoring cap over his eyes, and sallied forth. In the Strand he took a cab to Fitzroy Street. There was no light in Larry's windows, and on a card he saw the words, To let. Gone! Had he after all cleared out for good? But how? Without money! And the girl! bells were ringing now in the silent frostiness. Christmas Eve, and Keith thought, if only this wretched business were off my mind, monstrous that one should suffer for the faults of others. He took a route which led him past Borough Street. Solitude brooded there, and he walked resolutely down on the far side, looking hard at the girl's window. There was a light. The curtains just failed to meet so that a thin gleam shone through. He crossed, and after glancing swiftly up and down, deliberately peered in. He only stood there perhaps twenty seconds, but visual records gleaned in a moment sometimes outlast the visions of hours and days. The electrical light was not burning, but in the center of the room the girl was kneeling in her nightgown before a little table, on which were four lighted candles. Her arms were crossed on her breast, the candlelight shone on her fair cropped hair, on the profile of cheek and chin, on her bowed white neck. For a moment he thought her alone, then behind her saw his brother, in a sleeping suit, leaning against the wall, with arms crossed, watching. It was the expression on his face which burned the whole thing in, so that always afterwards he was able to see that little scene, such an expression as could never have been on the face of one even faintly conscious that he was watched by any living thing on earth. The whole of Larry's heart and feeling seemed to have come up out of him, yearning, mockery, love, despair. The depths of his feeling for this girl, his stress of mind, fears, hopes, the flotsam good and evil of his soul, all transfigured there, exposed and unforgettable. The candlelight shone upward on to his face, twisted by the strangest smile. His eyes, darker and more wistful than mortal eyes should be, seemed to beseech and mock the white-clad girl, who, all unconscious, knelt without movement like a carved figure of devotion. The words seemed coming from his lips, Pray for us, bravo, yes, pray for us, and suddenly Keith saw her stretch out her arms and lift her face with a look of ecstasy, and Lawrence starting forward. What had she seen beyond the candle-flames? It is the unexpected which invests visions with poignancy. Nothing more strange could Keith have seen in this nest of the murky and illicit. But in sheer panic, lest he might be caught thus spying, he drew back and hurried on. So Larry was living there with her. When the moment came, he could still find him. Before going in, he stood full five minutes leaning on the terrace parapet before his house, gazing at the star-frosted sky and the river cut by the trees into black pools oiled over by gleams from the embankment lamps. And deep down, behind his mere thoughts, he ached, somehow, somewhere, ached. Beyond the cage of all that he saw and heard and thought, he had perceived something he could not reach. But the night was cold, the bell silent, for it had struck twelve. Entering his house, he stole upstairs. End of part six. Part seven. If for Keith those six weeks before the Glove Lane murder trial came on were fraught with uneasiness and gloom, they were for Lawrence almost the happiest since his youth. From the moment when he left his rooms and went to the girls to live, a kind of peace and exultation, took possession of him. Not by any effort of will did he throw off the nightmare hanging over him, nor was he drugged by love. He was in a sort of spiritual catalepsy. In face of fate too powerful for his will, his turmoil, anxiety, and even restlessness had ceased. His life floated in the ether of what must come will. Out of this catalepsy, his spirit sometimes fell headlong into black waters. In one such whirlpool he was struggling on the night of Christmas Eve. When the girl rose from her knees, he asked her, What did you see? Pressing close to him, she drew him down onto the floor before the fire, and they sat, knees drawn up, hands clasped, like two children trying to see over the edge of the world. It was the virgin I saw. She stood against the wall and smiled. We shall be happy soon. When we die, Wanda, he said suddenly, let it be together. We shall keep each other warm out there. Huddling to him she whispered, Yes, oh yes, if you die I could not go on living. It was this utter dependence on him, the feeling that he had rescued something which gave him sense of anchorage. That and his buried life in the retreat of these two rooms. Just for an hour in the morning, from nine to ten, the charwoman would come, but not another soul all day. They never went out together. He would stay in bed late, while Wanda bought what they needed for the day's meals lying on his back, hands clasped behind his head, recalling her face, the movements of her slim, rounded, supple figure, robing itself before his gaze, feeling again the kiss she had left on his lips, the gleam of her soft eyes, so strangely dark in so fair a face. In a sort of trance, he would lie till she came back, then get up to breakfast about— noon off things which she had cooked, drinking coffee. In the afternoon he would go out alone, and walk for hours, anywhere, so long as it was east. To the east there was always suffering to be seen, always that which soothed him with the feeling that he and his troubles were only a tiny part of trouble. That, while so many other sorrowing and shadowy creatures lived, he was not cut off. To go west was to encourage dejection. In the west all was like Keith, successful, immaculate, ordered, resolute. He would come back tired out and sit watching her cook their little dinner. The evenings were given up to love, queer trance of an existence which both were afraid to break no sign from her of wanting those excitements which girls, who have lived her life, even for a few months, are supposed to need. She never asked him to take her anywhere, never, in word, deed, look, seemed anything but almost rapturously content. And yet he knew, and she knew, that they were only waiting to see whether fate would turn her thumb down on them in these days he did not drink out of his quarter's money when it came in he had paid his debts their expenses were very small he never went to see keith never wrote to him hardly thought of him and from those dread apparitions wallen lying with the breath knocked out of him and the little gray driven animal in the dock he hid as only a man can who must hide or be destroyed but daily he bought a newspaper and feverishly furtively scanned its columns end of part 7